Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome listeners and thanks for stopping by. I thought I'd take this opportunity to share with you a little bit about the method and the madness of putting this podcast together every week. And take this occasion to remind you of two features at the end of every episode so you don't miss out on them. Maybe you've picked up on it or maybe not, but there is a process and format I use to create each week's episode of the Paranormal Factor podcast. Every episode includes an introduction of our topic and then a part one and a part two as we cover the subject matter and finally a conclusion to wrap things up. When the episode deals with a creature or an entity or a cryptid, part one is always background on the legend and folklore so you have some context. When did the legend begin? What are the particulars? Are there elements that are different than today? Part two covers real reported sightings and encounters, you know, the good stuff. We may also cover what skeptics think. Now, when the subject matter is a specific case, as it is with this episode, then part one presents the narrative of the case, and part two presents the aftermath and counter viewpoints. And then we wrap up with the conclusion, giving you the thoughts of those associated with each topic, as well as my take on the subject. But don't turn off the podcast just yet. You'll miss two fun and key parts of the episode. We do the episode quiz right after the conclusion. This is the same question posted Tuesdays on the Facebook page, but I only give the answer on the show. And right after the quiz, I reveal what the following week's episode will be about. So stick around and check it out. Now, on to our episode. At first, it looked like a monkey, maybe even an old man. But the more Glennie Lankford stared, the more she realized it was something much stranger. The figure waddled through the darkness. It was no more than three feet tall, with two eyes that shined from the far edges of its head. And good lord, was it covered in metal? Or was that aluminum foil? Lankford was one of the several people who spotted the creature out the window of her cramped Kentucky farmhouse. An entire family of adults and children, and all of them were growing increasingly tense. Earlier in the evening, the kids had noticed eerie circles of light hovering above the home, and right before the figure appeared, some of the adults thought they'd seen something plummet out of the sky and cannonball into a nearby field. Of all the details of their story, the UFO landing and the appearance of small alien creatures, one fact is indisputable. When the eight adults and three children arrived at the nearby Hopkinsville police station at about 11 p.m., they were genuinely terrified. The group reported they had witnessed a flying saucer land near the farmhouse where they were staying the night. Little men surrounded the house, peering at the frightened family as they attempted to gain entry. Two of the men claimed to have fought off the creatures with a shotgun and a rifle for several hours before leaving to notify the police. 
The little men, they reported, were short, monkey-like, with long arms and webbed hands with talons, large, bright, offset eyes, and pointed ears. Concerned about a possible gun battle between local citizens, four city police, five state troopers, three deputy sheriffs, and four military police from nearby U.S. Army Post, Fort Campbell, drove to the Sutton farmhouse. Their search yielded nothing apart from evidence of gunfire and holes in window and door screens made by firearms. But the family members stuck by their story and were still visibly shaken. The Kelly-Hopkinsville encounter, also known as the Hopkinsville Goblins case and the Kelly-Green Men case, was a claimed close encounter with extraterrestrial beings in August of 1955 near the unincorporated rural community of Kelly and the nearby town of Hopkinsville in Christian County in the state of Kentucky. Nearly 70 years ago, the Sutton family living on the outskirts of Kelly made headlines by claiming they'd been visited by little gray men. Interestingly, they were misquoted in the press, resulting in the addition of little green men to our modern lexicon. UFOlogists regard this case as one of the most significant and well-documented cases in the history of UFO incidents. While skeptics say the reports were due to the effects of excitement and misidentification of natural phenomena, like meteors and owls, the United States Air Force classified the alleged incident as a hoax in the Project Blue Book files. Psychologists have used the alleged incident as an academic exercise of pseudoscience to help students distinguish truth from fiction. The incredible story began, in part, on the night of August the 21st, 1955, when the large extended farm family named the Suttons arrived breathlessly at the Hopkinsville police station in southwestern Kentucky. Their story of a terrifying siege by otherworldly beings would become one of the most detailed and baffling accounts of an alien close encounter on record. Notable for the large number of witnesses, nearly a dozen, the duration of the encounter, which lasted several hours, and the close proximity between the witnesses and the creatures, sometimes just a few feet away. The incident quickly became regional and even national news. It was also well documented in the media and pop culture. Director Steven Spielberg cited it as part of the inspiration behind such films as E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Several law enforcement agencies, from the nearby Hopkinsville police to the U.S. Air Force, would investigate the encounter in the coming weeks. All of them dismissed it as nothing more than fantasy. But what's now known as the Kelly-Hopkinsville encounter has become an infamous story among alien believers. For them, it is proof that extraterrestrials have visited this planet. Listeners, for me, this is one of the most unique cases in all of UFO history. I can't think of another case where people were literally under siege at their home, nor a more unusual battle being fought out between alleged aliens and gun-wielding home dwellers. And not once, but twice, you see, after the authorities left and the family was alone again, the aliens returned for a second round of terror. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Here is what happened on that August 21st night in 1955 at a farmhouse in Kelly, Kentucky. On the evening of Sunday, August the 21st, 1955, Elmer Lucky Sutton, 
a young man in his early 20s, was visiting his mom, Glennie Lankford, and three younger half-siblings at the Kelly, Kentucky farmhouse he'd grown up in, eight miles north of Hopkinsville. The people in the farmhouse included Glennie Lankford, the 50-year-old matriarch of the family, her children, Lonnie, Carlton, and Mary, all aged 12 and under, two sons from a previous marriage, Elmer Lucky Sutton, John Charlie J.C. Sutton, and their respective wives, Vera and Aline, Aline's brother, O.P. Baker, and Billy Ray Taylor and his wife, June. Both the Taylors, Lucky, and Vera Sutton were traveling carnival workers that were visiting the farmhouse, 11 people in all, eight adults and three children. The family lived in an unpainted three-room farmhouse without running water, telephone, radio, TV, or books. Following a hearty supper prepared by Miss Glennie, the party of eleven had settled in for a card game when Billy Ray made an outlandish claim. According to accounts given to the police, at about 7 p.m. on the hot Sunday evening, Billy Ray Taylor stated he was fetching water from the backyard well when he saw a silvery object. Real bright, with an exhaust all the colors of the rainbow, as he later recounted. It came silently toward the house, passed over it, stopped in the air, and then dropped straight to the ground. Walking back into the house, he blurted out that he'd just seen a round metallic object with rainbow-colored streaks trailing behind it moving through the sky above the farm. Taylor, 21, and his 18-year-old wife had come from Pennsylvania to visit his good friend Lucky. The others didn't take Billy Ray seriously, laughing off his UFO account. They took it as a prank at first, writing it off as just another one of the tricks Billy Ray and Lucky like to play on each other. But Billy Ray seemed genuinely bothered by whatever he'd seen, despite the others' insistence that it was probably just a meteor or a shooting star. When he asked his wife, June, for reassurance that she believed him, the absurdity of it all sent her and the others into fits of laughter. That laughter would end soon enough. Unwilling to let it go, Billy Ray got lucky to walk out to the well with him so he could point out exactly where the object had gone across the sky. Lucky didn't know what to make of his friend's story, but it was clear something had scared him. They were headed back to resume their game when they were alerted by the dog's insistent barking. Lucky and Billy Ray saw a glowing object approaching from the woods behind the house. As it got closer, they realized it was a short, human-like creature. About three and a half feet tall, it had an oversized head, almost perfectly round. Its arms extended almost to the ground, its hands had talons, and its oversized eyes glowed with a yellowish light. The body gave off an eerie shimmer in the light of the night's moon, they said, as if made of silver metal. Its motion on two legs seemed to float rather than walk. Lucky yelled in obscenity and the two men ran inside, slamming the door behind them. Terrified, the two men grabbed a 12-gauge shotgun and a 22 rifle and fired at the little man, its hands now raised as if held up at gunpoint as it came toward the back door. They shot at it, hitting it. They reported that it then did a flip, scrambled upright, and fled into the darkness. 
Around this same time, a neighbor about a quarter mile north of them noticed lights in the woods behind the Sutton farm and figured the family was searching for one of their pigs that had gotten out. Later, when he heard those gunshots, he imagined they were dealing with a bobcat preying on their livestock. Glennie didn't understand what the commotion was about. She'd lived on the property for decades and never experienced anything even remotely strange but didn't want Lucky's talk of otherworldly goblins upsetting his younger siblings, so she sent them to bed. The next thing she knew, the guys were standing guard at the doors, Lucky at the front with a 12-gauge and Billy Ray at the back with that 22 rifle. She couldn't believe how far they were willing to go to play a prank. I am not going to be scared in my own house, she thought. Once Lucky's mind was set on something, there wasn't any convincing him otherwise his mother knew. So she tried getting answers from his friend instead. Maybe the two young men were just playing a joke on their wives. Glennie went to Billy Ray by the back door. Just what exactly was this game all about, she wanted to know. Miss Glennie, I, I hope you don't have to find out, he replied. They were sitting there silently, waiting, while everyone else except Lucky and the children talked in the living room, when a figure about three feet tall appeared in the doorway out of the darkness. Glennie screamed, and everyone came running. Billy Ray shot at the would-be intruder, piercing a hole in the screen door. At this point, Taylor reportedly ran onto the porch to confront the creature. Witnesses inside the house said a claw-like hand reached down from the porch's roof and touched Taylor's hair. Those inside grabbed Taylor and pulled him back into the house. Lucky stepped outside, aiming his gun at the roof. The creature he shot rolled off the roof and disappeared into the woods, apparently uninjured. The figure was now joined by an army of tiny monsters who rose from the weeds and swarmed around the house, pressing their grotesque faces against the windows. Lucky shot at other creatures he said he saw in trees nearby. Each time, the creatures evaded bullets and then floated to the ground before running off into the woods. The floating motion was as if a leaf had slowly floated to the ground. In the living room, a pair of glowing eyes and a set of talons appeared at the window. J.C. shot at it through the glass with a 20-gauge shotgun. Close behind, Billy Ray followed up with a bullet. The struck creature backflipped and took off running. Glennie, a religious woman who'd just been to church earlier that day, started praying. For all she knew, the glowing-eyed creatures on her lawn were sent from the devil himself. The gunfire had stirred her youngest children from sleep. Lucky urged the women to take the children into the back room and hide. Everyone but Glennie obeyed. She could hardly believe what she'd seen earlier. She needed a second look to be sure. Lucky and Billy Ray surveyed the front yard while J.C., O.P., and Glennie waited inside, J.C. at the ready with a cocked gun. Everyone yelled to look up in the maple tree. This time, everyone could clearly see one of the little men perched on a branch above them. They shot at it, but instead of falling, the being again floated off. The noise they heard when they fired at another one coming around the corner sounded like bullets hitting metal. It floated away too. Realizing their gunfire was useless, the men retreated. Back in the house, the group tried to collect their thoughts amidst racing questions. What are these things? Were they goblins or demons? Did their raised arms indicate innocent intent? If they didn't mean any harm to the home's occupants, why did they keep coming back after being shot? 
Bullets may have not scared the intruders off, but someone pointed out bright light seemed to hurt their large, yellow-pupiled eyes. Whenever a light came on, the beings backed away. They turned on every light in the house and waited. Outside, it was eerily silent. One of the children began to cry. Lucky was trying to think of what to do next when they heard scratching coming from the roof. He darted outside, pointed his gun at the top of the house, and fired at the creature there. The being floated down and scrambled out of sight beyond the trees, seemingly unharmed like the others. The Suttons spent several hours listening for movement, hearing mostly occasional scratches on the roof. It was becoming abundantly clear that these goblins couldn't be deterred, at least not by any means this ordinary farm family had at their disposal. While there was never a physical assault on any of the family members, there was also no way to know what the aliens' intent was. The men were not keen on waiting to find out what they had in store for them. It was time to get out of there. When the coast was clear, everyone made a break for the trucks, piling in as fast as they could. The sergeant working the front desk at the Hopkinsville police station didn't know what to say to the 11 people who'd come in before midnight. One of them said they'd been fighting little silver men for hours. The officer may not have believed that, but it was obvious something had frightened them. Why else would they have children out so late? The children seemed hysterical. One man had a pulse of 140 beats per minute measured by an investigator. And why did the adults appear to be terrified? Having reached the safety of the police station, it would now be up to the police to help them. Hopkinsville Police Chief Russell Greenwell wasn't so sure anyone needed help. The Hopkinsville Police Chief was sitting at home around 1 a.m. on August the 22nd, 1955, when the phone rang. And the desk sergeant told me a flying saucer had landed at Kelly, he told the press 21 years later. I thought he was kidding, and I told him I'd get even with him in the morning. But when Greenwell arrived at the chaotic scene, he realized it was no joke. These aren't the kind of people who normally run to the police for help, Police Chief Greenwell later told investigators. What they do is reach for their guns. Yet here they were, men, women, and children, absolutely terrified. Chief Greenwell radioed Kentucky State Police, the Christian County Sheriff's Office, and Fort Campbell Army Base, which dispatched its own police personnel. The local paper, the Kentucky New Era, got wind of it and sent a staff photographer. Within an hour, at least a half-dozen law enforcement and media members had converged on the Sutton Farm along with the returning family. Authorities searched the property with flashlights but found no sign of the little men, only holes in the window screens and plenty of shotgun shell casings. Law enforcement scoured the property, even hiking to the spot where the saucer had supposedly landed. There were no indentations, no burnt grass, Greenwell said. One officer noticed something glowing in the woods, but a search returned nothing. The ground beneath where Lucky had shot one of the alleged beings appeared to have been stained with something that gave off an iridescent sheen when viewed from an angle. Another officer reported seeing a meteor shower in the area, but no flying saucer. Media quickly spread the strange news of the Hopkinsville goblins, or little men. Reporting about this incident helped to popularize the term little green men as a generic term used for aliens, although the color green was not mentioned in the group's original interviews. Officers questioned the family members separately, but all they got was the same consistent description of the night's events. 
Neither could they find proof of heavy drinking. According to the Sutton matriarch, Glennie, liquor was not allowed in the farmhouse. After hours of fruitless investigation, the police left. Once the police and others left, though, the creatures returned. Sometime around two or three in the morning, after a fitful nap that never entered deep sleep, Glennie awoke to the sight of one of the little men on the other side of her bedroom window, its claw-like hand on the screen. She called out to Lucky, who was dozing on the couch in the living room. He and Billy Ray spent the next couple of hours standing guard with their guns. The creatures left just before daybreak, they said, the last the family would ever see of them. But the tension returned just after dawn. There were MPs and police everywhere, and all of a sudden, a cat came out of an old hog house and one of the MPs stepped on the cat's tail, Police Chief Greenwell told the press. You never saw so many guns come out of holsters and machine guns come up to the ready when that cat screeched. Neighbors told two police officers that the families had packed up and left after claiming the creatures had returned about 3.30 in the morning. In the following days, after radio stations and newspapers, including the New York Times, reported the incident, hundreds of curiosity seekers descended on the farm, often ridiculing the Suttons as ignorant or fraudulent. When no trespassing signs proved useless at discouraging them, the family tried charging admission. 50 cents for entering the grounds, $1 for information, $10 for taking pictures. After that, skeptics blasted them as fortune-seeking storytellers. As the Kelly story spread into the world, it took on a life of its own. The number of little men grew to a dozen or more. A few years later, the little metallic men were merged with an eastern Kentucky woman's report of a flying saucer and a six-foot-tall man in green helping further launch that myth of little green men. Not everyone believed the attackers were spacemen. Alternative explanations from the Times suggested test flight monkeys used in rocket experiments crashed in the area. And in a notable tongue-in-cheek explanation found in the Senate Republican memo published by the Senate GOP Policy Committee, the visitors were simply Democrats turned green with envy at the popularity of President Dwight Eisenhower. The incident is now commonly explained as either an elaborate hoax or perhaps more charitably that the group shocked by the meteor shower in a state of panic and likely intoxicated confused a pair of aggressive great horned owls which are common in the area as an extraterrestrial menace. But everyone there that night claimed to be sober and they all stuck to their story. I hold my hands to God Elmer Sutton told the Evansville Press the next day, and swear on my mother this is true. Local and national news coverage of the goblins caused a wave of copycat sightings in the area. A group of Evansville teenagers reported seeing 10 of the creatures in the athletic field of Lincoln High School. The creatures, they said, loped off into the darkness after the teens began lobbing rocks at them. UFOlogists say the incident is important for several reasons. First and foremost, the contact between humanoid occupants of a spacecraft and Earthlings. The Kelly humanoids were among the earliest occupant reports associated with UFOs in the United States, said Thomas Bullard, UFOlogist with the Center for UFO Studies. Most examples prior to 1955 described space brothers, here to warn us against nuclear weapons and to invite us to join the interplanetary community and had no credibility as factual events. More credible accounts had come from Europe and South America in 1954, 
But the only well-known U.S. example was the Flatwoods Monster in West Virginia in 1952. But Brian Dunning, editor of Skeptoid, said the sighting likely wasn't spacemen. At this point, it seems clear that this was an honest misidentification of a pair of great horned owls who were reacting aggressively to their nest being disturbed, Dunning said in an interview. When you strip away the decades of enhancement to the story and go back to what the family actually reported at the time, it's virtually a perfect match. Family do seem to have been genuinely traumatized and frightened by it. Since the 1950s, however, the sighting has been the subject of books, TV shows, and speculation. Sadly, at the time, the incident brought scorn and derision to the involved families. Some of the reporters and sightseers subjected the family to cruel ridicule, trampled across their property, and they even barged into the house despite requests from Mrs. Lankford and orders from Lucky to go away, Bullard said. These witnesses had to be country bumpkins, and their story a tall tale, perhaps a result of moonshine, even though Mrs. Lankford had a strict rule of no alcohol in the house. Her sterling reputation for honesty among the people who knew her and who took the event seriously once they learned she was a witness weighed nothing on the scales of judgment for the gawkers and curiosity seekers. Eventually, the family left the area and scattered across the country, the only thing left of the encounter being tales passed from generation to generation. On a Sunday afternoon 14 years later, Lucky's daughter, Geraldine Sutton, then eight years old, was watching TV with her brother and sister when a man and woman knocked on the front door. Geraldine answered. The couple, who looked like they'd just come from church, wanted to know if her parents were home. Once Lucky, who had emerged from a back room to speak with the couple, realized what they wanted, he figured it was time to let his kids in on the event that had haunted him ever since. Their guests were writing a book about UFO sightings, he explained and wanted him to contribute his own experience. It was the first time they'd ever heard of their father's extraterrestrial encounter. My daddy didn't like how people treated him once the story got out, says Geraldine, who now goes by her married name, Stiff. People made fun of him. It was traumatizing. Still to this day, the witnesses who are alive, they're afraid to talk about it. Theories did emerge about the Sutton's claims. During subsequent investigations, the family members were questioned separately. Each described the evening's events and the creature's physical appearance in a consistent manner. Three to four feet tall, with muscular upper bodies and withered legs, large glowing eyes, and pointy ears. Different artists rendered similar sketches based on their individual descriptions. Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer and UFO researcher, highly regarded for his work with the United States Air Force, called the Kelly-Hopkinsville case preposterous and offensive to common sense, according to 2008's A World of UFOs by Chris Rutkowski. Dr. Hynek's Center for UFO Studies, however, did examine the Hopkinsville encounter. That work eventually birthed a book called Close Encounter at Kelly and Others of 1955. In a statement given to Hynek's Center for UFO Studies, Air Force Major John Albert said Glennie Lankford had recently sent away for a Christian publication that, for some absurd reason, contained a picture of a monkey painted silver. That image apparently disturbed her so much that when an inoffensive figure appeared on her lawn, she twisted it into the visage of an extraterrestrial covered in metal. The monkey theory weaves all through Close Encounter at Kelly, 
One skeptic told Hynek's researchers that a traveling circus had stopped along US-41 and sent its monkeys out on leashes. Some of them apparently escaped and descended on the farmhouse. There was no evidence of a circus coming through town, and according to the researchers, there's a slight problem with that theory anyway. Monkeys struck by bullets bleed and die, they wrote. Some skeptics said the little men were actually monkeys Billy Ray and Lucky had brought back from the carnival, while others thought the family had mistaken great horned owls for aliens. Kentucky moonshine was blamed, even though authorities found none on the premises that night. We all laughed at that because she didn't allow alcohol or even cursing on her property, says resident Joanne Smithy. They were a very quiet, trustworthy family. The Evansville Press published a front-page story that afternoon, complete with drawings of the otherworldly figures. Additional stories cropped up, too. I think it was imagination that built up from talk that got started among the people, Christian County Sheriff's Deputy George Bates said. They just got themselves worked up over nothing. All this bothered John Sutton. He'd been brave enough to report what he'd seen, and all he got in return was trouble and ridicule. If the aliens come back, he told the courier. I'm not going to let anyone know about it. Bud Ledwith, a local radio station employee, interviewed the adult witnesses and made drawings based on their accounts. According to Davis, he was impressed by their remarkable detailed accounts and consistency. Even though the men were away from the farmhouse all day, unable to coordinate with the others. While the incident eventually attracted the attention of the Air Force UFO Investigation Program Project Blue Book, Documents suggest that its team never officially pursued the matter, beyond checking in with their Fort Campbell counterparts who had been briefly at the scene the first night. One of the most thorough investigations of the Kelly incident was undertaken in 1956 by ufologist Isabel Davis and published several decades later by the Center for UFO Studies. Her nearly 200-page report, co-written with Ted Blotcher, includes detailed maps, drawings, documentary records, summaries of similar accounts around the world, and interviews with several Sutton family members and police investigators. Davis summarized the latter's concern about the lack of physical evidence, but to her reckoning, none of the possible explanations, a deliberate hoax, a publicity play, group hallucinations, made sense. While questions arose about whether the young men were exaggerating, possibly fueled by hidden stores of liquor, Davis's strong impression after meeting Mrs. Lankford was one of a somber, no-nonsense matriarch who abhorred the limelight and had no reason to lie. None of the witnesses, Davis noted, had any history of making preposterous allegations. The lies they told about us, lamented Glennie Lankford. They said we were drinking, but Lankford knew what she had seen. The aliens looked like a five-gallon gasoline can with a head on top and small legs, she insisted. It was a shimmering bright metal, like on my refrigerator. In 2006, Joe Nickel, senior research fellow of the International Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and a self-proclaimed paranormal investigator, reviewed the accumulated evidence in an article entitled Siege of the Little Green Men, the 1955 Kelly, Kentucky Incident. In it, he raised suspicion about what he called Billy Taylor's embroidered testimony. He matched Taylor's UFO sighting with similar reports from that day, which suggested a small meteor in the vicinity. As for the little men, Nickel floated an explanation used for other alien counter-stories. 
owls. In particular, the great horned owl has long wings that could be mistaken for arms, along with talons, yellow eyes, long ears, and round head that might also match the little men description. As for their metallic shine, Nichols suggests they could have easily been reflecting moonlight. But while hoot owls are known to be active at night and extremely aggressive when defending their nest, some investigators question characterizations of the creatures as hostile. To some, their behavior that night in Kelly appeared to be simply curious. Nickel also thought the family could have misidentified great horned owls. According to author Brian Dunning, there are simply too many similarities between the creatures reported by the family and an aggressive pair of the local great horned owls, which do stand about two-thirds of a meter tall. French ufologist Renaud Leclet also argued in a publication that the explanation of the case is great horned owls. Yet ufologist Jerome Clark writes the supposed creatures floated through the trees and the sound of bullets striking them resembled bullets striking a metal bucket. Clark describes an odd luminous patch along a fence where one of the beings had been shot and in the woods beyond a green light whose source could not be determined. However, in fairness, this description is consistent with foxfire, a bioluminescent fungus on decaying wood. Clark also wrote that investigations by police, military officers from nearby Fort Campbell, and civilian ufologists found no evidence of a hoax. Some ufologists compared the alleged creatures to gremlins, which have since often been referred to as the Hopkinsville goblins in popular culture. Project Blue Book listed the case as a hoax, with no further comment. There are similar reports in the United States of creatures like the Hopkinsville goblins, though they are not associated with UFO sightings. Dover, Massachusetts is home to the alleged Dover demon, a small gray humanoid creature with a large bulbous head and elongated thin limbs that allow it to quickly climb trees. The Chippewa Cree indigenous peoples of Montana share a similar story about a small race of troublemakers known as the Manigishi. Once again, this race is described as having a bulbous head, elongated limbs, and piercing yellow eyes. The comedy paranormal podcast The Boogie Monster took a stab at it back in December of 2019. Hosts Kyle Kinane and Dave Stone were split. Stone desperately wanted to believe it, while Kinane accused the Kelly clan of getting liquored up and shooting at owls. So what should we make of these possible explanations? Was it a group of monkeys, either escaped from a circus or brought by the Sutton family's circus workers to play a prank on other family members? Well, that seems unlikely. First, monkeys do not fit the descriptions given by the family members. Their eyes are closely set, like humans. They don't have large floppy ears or bulbous heads. Second, they have a very specific gait and run, and they don't float. Third, like any other animal, at the first shots fired, they would have fled. And finally, as previously noted, unless they were wearing Kevlar vests that had not been in existence, any shot would have killed or severely wounded them. And what about the idea it was nothing more than great horned owls? Well, these are very large birds and their size is consistent with the description of the aliens' size. While it's true the tuft horns on great horned owls might be mistaken for large ears, 
and gliding would produce a floating effect, there are some major problems with this explanation. If there had been an owl nest that caused an aggressive behavior, then surely it would have been evident before that night. And even the most aggressive owl is not going to attack a house, especially when being shot at. And again, if an owl had been shot, it would have been wounded or killed. But the biggest problem I have with this theory involves the Suttons themselves. This was a farm family, very comfortable with the outdoors. The men were hunters. The area was full of local wildlife. To suggest the family could have misidentified great horned owls, or any other wild animal for that matter, when faced with them, it just stretches plausibility to the extreme. So, the most likely explanation is one of two possibilities. The first is that it was a hoax perpetrated by Lucky and his friend Billy Ray. But we have to ask why someone would perpetrate a hoax resulting in terrorized children, gunshot damage to a home, and unwanted attention. That hardly seems believable. Is it possible? Yes. Is it at all likely? Not in the least. And the other possibility? It actually happened, just like they described it. Is there any actual proof? No. There are no alien bodies, no evidence of a craft landing, no other eyewitnesses outside the family. But as usual, there is nothing to directly refute their account, just efforts to explain it away with theories, opinion, and speculation. The family was well known in the community and believable. The police noted that they had never made any false reports before. The matriarch, Glennie Lankford, was by all accounts from family, friends, and neighbors, a strong, no-nonsense woman. Glennie, a widow in her early 50s who had always lived in the country, was so shaken up by the encounter that she sold the farmhouse and moved to an apartment in town, feeling safer around other people. The event so unnerved her that she would never live outside the confines of town again. Some have expressed opinions that Lucky and Billy Ray shouldn't have shot at the creatures or that had it been them, they would have just invited the little men in. My dad was trying to protect them. They were country boys, and that's what they knew to do, to get their guns, says Geraldine Stipp, Elmer Lucky Sutton's daughter. My family went through something, whether it be paranormal or extraterrestrial, that changed their lives forever. I just want people to realize the terror they went through that night. And there has never really been an adequate explanation for what the family experienced that terrifying night. Even skeptics grudgingly allow that the family truly were terrified. We'll give the last word to John Sutton. You can believe it or not, John Sutton told the courier a few days after the battle with the aliens. Just don't laugh at it. Postscript. For the past 10 years, Kelly, Kentucky has celebrated the Kelly Little Green Men Days Festival. The festival is held yearly on the third weekend of August. Yes, yes, you could view it as an effort to cash in. A lot of well-known cryptids, UFO, and paranormal events have such festivals. And while you might boo and hiss over the commercialization of this storied event, you could just as easily attend and have a great time. The festival has great food from local vendors, live music, costume contests, fun kids' activities, rides and games, arts and craft booths, and a lot more. Not to mention a 38-foot flying saucer. 
while it was sadly canceled in 2021 due to COVID concerns, hopefully it's back this year and ready to deliver a good time. And now it's time for the episode quiz. And here is this week's episode quiz, which of course is posted out on our Facebook page. And I always encourage you, go on out and check out the Facebook page because it's got a lot of great content out there. So our quiz is as follows. What was Project Blue Book? Was it A, a UFO study by Michigan University? B, a United States Air Force program investigating UFOs? C, an Area 51 project to create a flying saucer? Or D, a project to describe all cryptids. So once again, what was Project Blue Book? Was it a UFO study by Michigan University? A United States Air Force program investigating UFOs? An Area 51 project to create a flying saucer? Or a project to describe all cryptids? And the answer is... B. A United States Air Force program investigating UFOs. Project Blue Book was the codename for the systematic study of unidentified flying objects by the United States Air Force from March 1952 to its termination on December 17th of 1969. The project, headquartered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, followed projects of a similar nature such as Project Sign, which was established in 1947, and Project Grudge, which was established the year after in 1948. Project Blue Book had two goals, namely to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security and to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. Thousands of UFO reports were collected, analyzed, and filed. However, as previously noted, Project Blue Book was terminated in 1969. Secretary of the Air Force Robert C. Siemens Jr. announced at the time that further funding of Project Blue Book cannot be justified either on the grounds of national security or in the interest of science. By the time Project Blue Book ended, it had collected 12,618 UFO reports and concluded that most of them were misidentifications of natural phenomena like clouds and stars, or conventional aircraft. According to the National Reconnaissance Office, a number of the reports could be explained by flights of the formerly secret reconnaissance planes U-2 and A-12. There were 701 reports classified as unexplained, even after thorough analysis. The UFO reports were archived and are available under the Freedom of Information Act, but names and other personal information of all witnesses have, of course, been redacted. The United States Air Force's official statement regarding UFOs, as noted in United States Air Force Fact Sheet 95-03, is as follows. As a result of these investigations, studies and experience gained from investigating UFO reports since 1949, the conclusions of Project Blue Book were, number one, no UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force has ever given any indication of threat to our national security. Number two, there has been no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as unidentified represent technological developments or principles beyond the range of present-day scientific knowledge. And three, 
there has been no evidence indicating the sightings categorized as unidentified are extraterrestrial vehicles. The Air Force has officially stated, since the termination of Project Blue Book, nothing has occurred that would support a resumption of UFO investigations by the Air Force. It now advises anyone witnessing a UFO to report it to local law enforcement agencies. In our next episode of the Paranormal Factor podcast, we face off with the Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp. In the folklore of Lee County, South Carolina, one legend towers over all the others. The Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp, a hostile entity said to inhabit the swampland of the region. Tantalizingly bizarre, this green, damp, seven-foot-tall lizard creature has three fingers, red eyes, skin like a lizard, snake-like scales, and plenty of teeth and claws. In other words, listeners, it's right up our alley. So join me as we track down the facts and uncover together the story of the Lizard Man of Skateboard Swamp, next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks. And thanks for stopping by.